Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36. And before I begin, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the power of your word, that it's living and powerful and active, that it accomplishes your will in the way that you want it to be accomplished. You call us to be faithful preachers of the word, faithful hearers of the word, and faithful doers of the word. So help us to listen intently and carefully. We do ask for your spirit's help. We depend upon your spirit to give us understanding, to transform us, to conform us more into the image of Christ, that we may live out these truths. We pray for uh, your spirit to convict those in sin, that they may turn to you. We also pray for your spirit to comfort and sanctify those that are yours. And may this time be one that would bring you much glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Title this message, We Preach Christ. We Preach Christ. Uh, the theme of Shepherd's Conference was unashamed. Unashamed. And that fits well with the idea and the point of this passage. And also for our calling as Christ's church. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Are you unashamed to be identified and unified to Christ? Are you unashamed to be a follower of Christ? Are you unashamed to be set apart for Christ? 
Or would you rather fit in and accommodate to the world and the things of this world? In other words, are you unashamed to love Christ? To live for Christ? To honor Christ? To stand firm for Christ? To pursue holiness for Christ? To suffer for Christ? To endure and persevere through trials and temptations? To display Christ's power? And to preach Christ because he is the Messiah and because he is Lord and because he is Savior who has done it all in order to grant you the undeserved gift of salvation. This is why we must make Christ known. This is why we must preach Christ. This necessitates the priority of preaching that is empowered and dependent upon the Holy Spirit because it is the word of truth that convicts and sanctifies It is the word of truth that produces new life. It is the word of truth that changes lives eternally and ultimately. 2 Corinthians 5.14, does Christ's love control you? And does it flow out of you and how you live your life and the decisions that you make? Hear more the testimony of God's word. Romans 5 verses 1 through 8. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians five seventeen to 21 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. 1 Corinthians 2, one twenty three. we preach Christ crucified. And this ought not to be a burden or a fearful thing, but a joy and a delight because of God's grace. 1 Peter 1, Tim preached the last two weeks, the last two Sundays, on a properly fear-filled life and the enduring word. Is our fear of God greater than our fear of man? 
We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so may we praise and give him praise continually. May his praise be continually on our mouths as our souls boast in him, as we magnify the Lord and exalt his name for what he has done. Why must we preach Christ? Why must we proclaim the gospel? Why is the church established? Why is the church the beacon of hope in this world? Genesis 3.15, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Man is sinful. Matthew 1.21, the Virgin Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Acts 2.21, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thus far, Luke has given us a preview of what the church is and what the church's place in God's plan is. The church is an institution and beacon of hope because Christ is the risen Lord and Savior and because the kingdom of God is at hand. We are in the last days. The day of the Lord is approaching. And we see that the church has a connection to Christ, a connection to Israel. God's not done with Israel. And a connection to the world. The gospel must go to the ends of the earth. The church is a manifestation of a new man, a new humanity, the first fruits of new creation. It is the beacon of hope in this world. It is the church of the living God who sent the promised Holy Spirit to give new life and to give hope that his plan is continuing to move forward to a new creation, to reverse the effects of the curse of the fall, where there will be no more sin, where there will be no more death. And because of what the church is, that determines what the church is to do. The church exists because of what Christ has done, and the church exists to proclaim what Christ has done. But not only that, also to live in light of what Christ has done. The testimony of how we live our lives and display Christ's likeness to those around us matters, which is why the scriptures talk so much about holiness and obeying God's commands. It's how we worship, it's how we obey, it's how we show love, it's how others see the transforming power of the gospel. The Holy Spirit gives life to the church, also empowers the church to do what she is called to do. And we learned last time in chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, how this is to be accomplished. How will people hear? How will the church grow? It's through the primacy of the word the primacy of the word, and that is why Peter takes his stand and declares the word of God to these Jews on the day of Pentecost. The book of Acts teaches that central to the growth of the church is the primacy of the word of God, as evidenced through the preaching of the word of God and the proclamation of the true gospel, one that preaches sin and salvation, judgment and grace. Throughout Acts, we see that the direct we see the direct connection between the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel with the word of God. 
being faithfully proclaimed and lived out. In Peter's opening to his sermon, he references, going back to a couple weeks ago, Joel's prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, to explain what just happened as these 120 or so believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak native languages unknown to them, but known to these hearers who were there on the day of Pentecost. Luke is intending to show what the significance of the day of Pentecost is and what the church's place in God's plan is in relation to Israel and the world, thus highlighting what the church is to do. Again, we preach Christ, we preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. So what Peter is declaring is that what is happening on that day is a part of something bigger. It fits into this whole new age. In other words, there's a future reality that this one event, Pentecost, fits into that looks forward to another future reality. And so what is quoted by Peter shows the entire age and how the church fits into it. He's laying out the big picture for these Jews to understand. And he quotes the prophet Joel to make this point. This is to show that Pentecost is not a fulfillment of the prophecy given in Joel chapter 2, but rather that parts of Joel 2 were fulfilled with the events of Pentecost and that some aspects await future fulfillment. And it's important to know where this fits in and particularly how the church fits into this. Not fulfilled yet are verses 19 and 20 in chapter 2. The great wonders and signs in the sky and on the earth and the sun turning into darkness and the moon into blood which will happen in the future in connection with the day of the Lord. So what does this tell us? It tells us that we're in this time period in history when God is moving everything forward to final fulfillments because Christ has died, he has risen, he's ascended, and the church has a crucial and critical role to play in God's plan. That's why the church is a history-making, history-changing institution because it brings hope, and the hope that we bring changes lives. The new covenant corresponds with all the eschatological promises which are now in process to be fulfilled with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. It kicks it off. The last days is the last stage before the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. And so there is an urgency. Verse 14 to 21 again, chapter 2, Luke summarizes Peter's sermon at Pentecost to show what the church's place in God's plan is so that we would know why we are to be witnesses why we are to be witnesses. We saw Peter's powerful exhortation as he takes his stand and declares to these Jews. And we see the prophetic the prophetic connection with Joel chapter 2 to the day of Pentecost and what's coming in the day of the Lord. And that highlights the primacy of the word for the church. And in these verses, Luke continues to summarize Peter's sermon at Pentecost to show God's plan of redemption through Jesus so that we would know why Christ must be preached. We need to know why Christ must be preached. Everything that Luke has been writing now is all tied together in Peter's sermon, and this is the heart of Peter's sermon. This is the heart of his sermon. He is declaring that according to God's sovereign, eternal plan, Jesus is the promised Messiah, and Jesus is Lord, and you must call upon him to be saved. That is why we must preach Christ. Peter will now provide proof to validate his conclusions from verses 14 to 21. Verse 21 again stating that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So first we'll look at the eternal plan. The eternal plan, verses 22 to 31. Here in this, in these verses, a sobering rebuke is given. 
and an eternal truth is given as well to these unbelieving Jews that are there listening to Peter as he stands up to boldly proclaim the word of God. The sobering rebuke is, the Messiah that you have been waiting for, you crucified, you killed. The eternal truth is, this was God's sovereign plan. This was all according to his perfect wisdom and the counsel of his will. Verse 22, if you look there, says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus Nazarene, a man attested you to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. It's God doing this work. Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, but God raised him up again. Verse 30, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath, oath to seat one of his sins on his throne. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. In verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is God's sovereign plan. So what these Jews who rejected the long-awaited Messiah needed to know was that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. And so Peter says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen. Listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene. And we'll stop there quickly. You don't see it in the English text, but in the Greek, there's a point to make that makes it very clear. Jesus, the Nazarene, is in the accusative case. And let me explain what that is, which is the case of the direct object. And so our direct objects, the subject of a sentence, no, they're not. They're the direct object of the sentence. And direct objects typically go after the subject. For example, Johnny hit the ball. Johnny is the subject. The ball is the direct object. It comes after the subject, Johnny. But here, it's first. So even though the sentence doesn't make Jesus the subject, Peter puts him first so that we understand what is most important. Peter's making this very Clear. In other words, Jesus, or in others, it would be the ball Johnny hit, putting emphasis on the direct object here, Christ, the Messiah. Don't miss this. This is the first thing he st- he states and declares. So Peter also stressed that the Jews should have read the meaning of these miracles and wonders and signs and recognized Jesus as the appointed Messiah. Notice the end of verse 22. He says, you yourselves know. You know this. Peter uses Jesus, the Nazarene, so that there is no confusion as to which Jesus is being mentioned. This is proof that he is who he claimed to be. Verse 22 says that God performed these miracles, wonders, and signs through him, meaning that he was God's chosen Messiah. Even the verb used in verse 22, attested, emphasizes that God demonstrated who Jesus is by what he accomplished through him. In other words, God proved it to you. He proved it to you. And Peter continues declaring, verse 23, even though God has proved this to you and you yourselves know, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan of, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter doesn't shy away from boldly proclaiming truth 
And in doing so, he reveals who God is. He makes God known to them, and he also makes their sinfulness known to them. He says God wasn't reactionary. He wasn't unaware. In fact, this was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In the riches of his infinite wisdom and knowledge, this was his eternal, unchanging plan. Predetermined foreknowledge have to do with being determined beforehand. There was, this was set. This was fixed from eternity past. God is all-knowing. And so there's nothing that he does not know, including the future. This is all a part of God's plan that is providentially being unfolded in time. There are no mistakes. There are no accidents. Not only was this the predetermined, not only was this predetermined by God, but this was spoken of by the prophets and by Christ himself. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49. Christ appeared after his resurrection and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 19 says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And we know from Isaiah 53:10, talking about the suffering servant looking forward to his death upon the cross, says the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Jews rejected him, gave him over to the hands of godless men, referring to the Roman officials as well as the Jewish leaders who took part to be crucified. Again, all of this was according to God's plan and foreknowledge. And Peter carefully balanced God's divine purpose and plan and the human responsibility for the crucifixion of Christ. God used evil men to accomplish his purpose, yet never violated their will or removed their culpability by doing so. Their willful actions confirm their responsibility and the providential unfolding of God's will at the same time. So how does that relate to each one of us? Christ's death upon the cross, his crucifixion. It's been said, quote, until you see the cross as that which was done by you, you will never appreciate that it was done for you. But it doesn't just end at his death that gives all hope. We see that in verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was not possible for him to be held by death. Death could not hold back Jesus. Why? Because he is the promised Messiah. This Greek word for agony is only used four times. And the three other times, it translates to birth pains or labor pains for a woman in labor. And so this phrase, putting an end to the agony of death, is saying that death can no more hold the Messiah in the tomb than a pregnant woman can hold her child in her womb. And we see that in the clarifying statement at the end of verse 24. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power, So what does Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish? 
it ends the agony of death. There is hope of life and life eternal. The resurrection is the proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It also means that the old system is dead. Jesus put the old to death. And we see that with the birth of a new age as he pours out the Holy Spirit and makes a new man, a new humanity, a first fruit of new creation, his church, to show that there is a hope that is to come. But you must call on the name of the Lord. And that is why Christ must be preached. And Peter will now provide scriptural proof that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is Lord from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Peter claims that David spoke of Jesus' resurrection hundreds of years before. He says in verse 25, for David says of him, he is claiming that David was an inspired prophet and therefore knew about the Messiah and his resurrection. Look at verses 30 and 31 says, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And we saw something similar in Acts chapter 1 verse 16, when Peter said to David, when Peter said that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, when he wrote about Judas who betrayed Jesus years later. And so in Psalm 16, David affirms his commitment to God and he expresses his confidence in him in both life and death. David had a messianic hope and expectation and Psalm 16 points to a resurrection. In context, David knew he was secure in this present life because his destiny and future hope was secure in this Messiah who would be resurrected. Psalm 22 and Psalm 86 also use similar language to speak about this eschatological resurrection and the Messiah. And we also see in Acts chapter 13 that not only does Peter see Psalm 16 as pointing forward in this messianic hope in its own context, but so does the Apostle Paul. This same passage is used in connection with Paul's preaching about the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 13, verses 30 to 37. And there it says, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. As for the fact that he will that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served his purpose for God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And the following two verses says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you cannot be freed through the law of Moses, which only exposes your sin. This shows that the Old Testament spoke of and anticipated the resurrection of Christ. And these Jews would have known the Old Testament and should have known this. 
in verse 27, makes it clear that David is not speaking about himself, as some say. The designation Holy One never refers to David, but does refer explicitly to the Anointed One, the Messiah, as in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, he says in verses 29 to 31, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And again, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Notice that Peter addresses them as brethren, not referring to them as fellow Christians, but as fellow Jews. He also uses another proof from Psalm 132, verse 11 and verse 30, to show that David was speaking about the Messiah, and now he approaches it from a, from the understanding of the throne of David and the, and its theological implications. And so the question is, is Jesus currently reigning from David's throne in heaven? Is Jesus currently reigning from David's throne in heaven? And Peter quotes Psalm 132, verse 11, contextually, not changing the meaning of the throne of David from its normal meaning, which is an earthly throne, as expressed in the Old Testament, This is, therefore, an Old Testament prophetic text that will be fulfilled literally in the future. The throne of David is related both to function and location. Functionally, it involves kingly authority and rule. Regarding location, it involves an earthly geographical place. This means that the one who rules from David's throne will do so from and over the land of Israel. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33 says, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign future over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The throne of David is linked geographically with Jerusalem and Israel. Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 10 speaks of the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, even from Dan to Beersheba. Jeremiah 17.25 links the throne of David with Judah and Jerusalem. On nine occasions, David's throne is called the throne of Israel, emphasizing that this throne is earthly, in location, and involves Israel. This reign and rule of the one upon the Davidic throne will impact the whole world and extend throughout the whole earth. And David knew that the Messiah is destined to sit upon and reign from David's throne forever. So the Messiah must be raised from the dead. Peter's not saying that Jesus is currently sitting upon David's throne, but that the resurrection means that God's promise to seat a descendant of David upon his throne forever is alive and well and will be fulfilled literally in the future. The resurrected Jesus who currently is in heaven at the right hand of God is, in other words, destined to reign upon David's throne. Peter makes this distinction in verse 33. It says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. And remember that David's throne is an earthly one involving Israel and the nations upon the earth, not a heavenly one. Revelation 3 verse 21 says, he who overcomes, I will grant future him to sit down with me on my throne, referring to David's throne, as I also overcame and sat down, which speaks about his present, current ministry with the Father upon his throne, God's throne. 
The two thrones are distinguished. One is current and one is future. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 says, He, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Matthew twenty five thirty one. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He has poured out his Holy Spirit and he is destined to reign upon the Davidic throne on earth. And so Jesus could not remain dead. It was impossible for him to remain dead. He must be resurrected. And so Peter is declaring to Israel, listen up, listen up. The resurrected Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. He is alive. He is the one you've been waiting for. Though you rejected him in the past, you can believe upon him now and be saved. And Peter clearly applies the psalm to Christ. His reasoning is straightforward. It's well known that David died, so the psalm could not apply to him. Verse 29 makes that clear. The psalm is a prophecy of David intended for a descendant who would sit on the Davidic throne. Verse 30. The psalm applies to Christ who indeed has risen and is thus the messianic descendant of whom David spoke. Verse 31. The psalm is not used to prove the resurrection, but that Jesus is the Messiah. The proof of the resurrection is the eyewitness report of the disciples. Verse 32. He says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Also notice that Psalm 16, verse 10, is cited again in verse 31. And here the past tense is used to emphasize fulfillment. He was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So the point is plain. While David could hope for a resurrection from the grave, David could not be the fulfillment of Psalm 16, verse 10, because David died. He was buried, and he's currently in his tomb in which they can go visit. Peter explicitly says, David predicted the resurrection of the Messiah. And so David was confident of his future resurrection from the grave because of his relationship to the coming Holy One who would be resurrected and avoid decay. In other words, David will live because the Messiah lives. And so will all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Jews needed to listen and give heed to Peter's words because their lives depended upon it. They needed to know who the Messiah is. Again, they killed him, but all hope is not lost. The church has been birthed and established to bring this hope to Israel, and to the world. He is resurrected. He is alive and seated at the right hand of God, awaiting his return to establish his everlasting earthly kingdom upon the Davidic throne. And now is the time that things are moving towards the day of the Lord because we are in the last days, and so Christ must be preached. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? We must preach Christ and him crucified and resurrected and ascended and coming back to judge. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And the amazing thing is, 
that this is God's sovereign eternal plan to bring many to salvation. And it is through the church that he fulfills this plan because of Christ's finished work upon the cross. Do you understand, church, our calling? Do you understand our purpose? Do you understand that we are a new man, a new humanity? The Spirit has been poured out into us, regenerated our hearts, given us new life, so that we can go and proclaim him and proclaim this hope to the world. That's the eternal plan. Secondly, and quickly, we'll look at the significance, verses 32 to 36. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it is it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The significance is that the apostles and those who the resurrected Christ revealed himself to were to be witnesses, testifying about Christ, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his works, and what it accomplished. The significance is seen in the beginning of this new age with the day of Pentecost. The significance is seen in the birth of the church. Peter is declaring to these Jews on that day and to all today that there is still hope. Time is not out yet. God is patient. God is merciful. God is gracious. But the day of the Lord is coming. And we do not know when that day will be. And Peter uses another psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, which is quoted throughout the New Testament, not only to affirm that David was referring to Jesus as Messiah, but also to Jesus as Lord. Verse 34, the Lord said to my Lord, God the Father said God to God the Son. And the phrase, at my right hand, in verse 34, connects Psalm 110 with Psalm 16, 8, that he quoted in verse 25. Peter's point is that Jesus, as a result of his resurrection and as a result of his ascension, is sitting at God's right hand and he is the Messiah and he is Lord. And Peter uses this to affirm Jesus' identity and God's plan for this age. At this time, Jesus sits at God's right hand awaiting the final conquest of his enemies. This is about the Messiah and how God establishes his reign. And verse 36 provides the climax to Peter's sermon as he returns full circle to its beginning point, the affirmation of Jesus as Lord. From verse 21, shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. And verse 22, Peter starts off with Jesus, the Nazarene. All of Scripture affirms this. God himself affirms this. Everything Peter preached affirmed this, that Jesus is the Messiah 
and that Jesus is Lord, and you must call upon him to be saved. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is proclaimed as Savior, Messiah, and Lord from his birth. Luke chapter 2, verse 11 says, For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ, the anointed Messiah, the Lord. And here, Peter's sermon highlights the way in which this became known and how we are to make it known through the preaching of Christ, preaching that he is Lord over all, and you must call upon him to be saved, and that there is no other way for man to be saved under heaven. Christ is the only way to life eternal. Christ is the only way for your sins to be forgiven. Christ is the only hope that you have. But you must repent. You must turn from your sinful ways, your sinful thinking, your sinful lifestyle, living for self. And you must turn to the perfect sacrifice, the perfect one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord and depend upon his perfect righteousness in order to be saved. Because you cannot do anything on your own efforts, through your own merits, to earn salvation. It must be through Christ. So you must turn to him. So what do we learn about God in this passage of Peter's preaching? We learn that God is not waiting to see how history unfolds. He orchestrates all things according to the counsel of his will. God is in control of history. He's in control of our lives. And we are to praise him for his plan of redemption in which we are recipients of. What do we learn about Jesus? I think that point is clear. Jesus is the Messiah. He's Lord. And it's his name we must call upon for salvation. And what do we learn about the Holy Spirit? We must depend upon the Holy Spirit in prayer, as we proclaim the word of truth. We know that as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, these believers were praying to be to be prepared to receive the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and to be effective witnesses for Christ. They were praying for the success of the mission of the church that they were just given to proclaim from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so when Peter, chapter 2, verse 14, took his stand... He has been backed by prayer from the whole church. They've been praying, not just for a bold leader in Peter, but for the success of the mission. So we must pray for the preaching of God's word. We must pray also for our own sharing of truth and evangelism with those who are lost. Spurgeon, when asked, why is your ministry so effective? He answered, because... Because my people pray for me, and we pray for one another. Acts 6.4 says, The leaders, the elders, will devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We see the primacy of the word. We also see the necessity of prayer. The power of prayer. Our dependence upon God in prayer. As we preach, as we declare truth, as we evangelize, as we live. What do we learn about preaching Christ from Peter? He's bold. He's courageous. He's confident. 
He has this freedom in speaking about Christ. Why? Because he's been transformed. He's experienced. He's seen and tasted that the Lord is good. He knows that the Lord is continually with him, continually working to sanctify him. We know this is the same Peter who denied him, the same Peter that was encouraged to feed the flock, to tend his sheep. And now he's here boldly proclaiming who Christ is and what Christ has done because he knows Christ. And therefore, it's easy for him to boldly proclaim him faithfully. And we even see it with the testimony of Peter's writing later in his epistles with First Peter and Second Peter. He's facing the harshest persecution. And yet, he understands who God is. He understands the primacy of the word. He understands the necessity of holiness in life. And he understands that we must proclaim him. We also see from Peter's preaching that over and over he turns to the authority of Scripture. He quotes the Psalms over and over to make his point, to show that Scripture is all speaking with one voice. It's all interconnected. There's one storyline, and it's all connected together, and it points to Christ and the gospel and what we are to do for Christ and in terms of proclaiming the gospel. We learn from his preaching that it exalts God It magnifies Christ. It doesn't focus on self, but it makes God known, which is the purpose of why God has given us his revelation, to reveal himself to man. And we must look at Scripture in that way, not looking to Scripture to find more about ourselves, but to look to Scripture to see what we can learn about God so that we can properly understand who we are and properly respond in a way that would glorify him. We also see in this preaching that it's not just all about you crucified Christ, you sinful men, you handed him over, you put him to death, but it's one that gives great hope. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is Lord. There's hope. There's hope. Are you unashamed of Christ? Are you unashamed to speak the truth on behalf of Christ? Are you unashamed to stand firm in the face of persecution and false accusations for Christ? We are his church. We've been saved. We've been called for this purpose. This is who we are. And consistent with our new nature is what we are to do. We are to make Christ known. We are to preach Christ We are to live out Christ-likeness so that others may see their need for a Savior, that they may know that they are lost, not only lost, but they're spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses, that the only hope that they have is to believe upon the finished work of Christ. And we are the institution that God has birthed from the day of Pentecost, giving us his very spirit to empower us, give us exactly what we need to proclaim this truth. He is always with us even to the end of the age, Matthew 28 as we go out and make disciples for him. We are not left alone. We have great encouragement from the scriptures. We have God with us, the spirit with us, Christ with us. And we know the power of the gospel. We know that it saves. And so we must preach Christ, for we are in the last days, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of Peter's sermon given to us. Though it was spoken to the unbelieving Jews in that day, what Peter spoke still rings true to this day. There's many who reject you. There's many who don't truly know who you are. There's many who don't truly know who they are. Father, I pray that your spirit would help us see in this passage just the recognition of our sinfulness, the fallenness of mankind, and then also see the hope of the gospel. Father, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for your word. We know that you've given us your word not just so we can grow in our knowledge of you, but also in the living out of what we know of you. And that involves proclaiming you, making your word of truth known to the ends of the earth and to those in our families and those within our communities. Father, help us to be faithful ambassadors of your word, knowing that it's the ministry of reconciliation and that we are to call those around us to be reconciled to you. We thank you for this high calling. We thank you for the privilege of participating in this task. Thank you that you are with us empowering us, and sanctifying us through this very thing. May your word encourage us this day. May it provide us with great comfort and joy as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.